This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on Alzheimer's dementia. My name is Lalitha Bhagavathisaran and I'm the Outreach and Engagement Manager at BMJ. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia worldwide. Approximately 50 million people have this disease. The World Health Organization estimates that there will be 82 million people with dementia by 2030. Dementia has significant social and economic implications, and with the rising numbers, it's important for health professionals to keep up with the latest advances. To help us, we have Dr. Judith Neurogshel. Judith is a medical director at the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Judith is also an author on our BMJ Best Practice topic on Alzheimer's dementia. So welcome to the podcast, Judith. Thank you. Let me start off by asking, what exactly is Alzheimer's dementia? Alzheimer's dementia is a neurodegenerative disease, um, which is characterized by an insidious onset and a progressive decline. And it is the most common form of dementia uh, in the elderly. It has, was defined by its neuropathology, um, which was originally described by Dr. Alzheimer at the turn of the last century. And it's characterized by uh, amyloid plaques, which are made of something called amyloid beta protein, and neurofibri- neurofibrillary tangles, which are made of a hyperphosphorylated tau protein. Um, and that's what he really described in his neuropathological description of the illness. Uh, and then another important piece that we uh, consider in thinking about Alzheimer's disease is neuronal loss. And these are all things that are that are primarily um, based on autopsy diagnoses of people with cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the recent advances in diagnosis? Absolutely. Um, so over the last 10 years or so, a little more, we've developed the ability to image amyloid in living people using PET scan tracers that bind to those amyloid plaques. That has significantly changed the way we understand this disease in that it's become clear that there are people who are cognitively normal who may have a significant amyloid deposition in their brains. So um, research is suggesting that there's probably a long phase of preclinical Alzheimer's disease, asymptomatic, where biomarkers are measurable, followed by a period of mild symptoms, and which then you know take off and become worse and eventually cause the dementia that we all recognize. In this model, people who are, have positive biomarkers and normal cognition may be even described as having Alzheimer's disease by researchers, even in the absence of symptoms, but obviously clinically that's not a useful concept. There's a current theory that suggests that amyloid builds up and builds up and builds up, and when it comes to a certain level, it then triggers an increase in the tau protein, and that it's actually that increase in tau as it takes off, which is associated with the worsening cognition. And, of course, the the good news about this theory is that it suggests that there could be a window to treat prior to symptoms that is in many ways where this field is, is heading. In addition, there is um, there are now tracers 
that are in research settings can identify tau protein, but those are still under investigation and have, are not commercially available. That's interesting. Thank you. What are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? The common pitfalls in diagnosis um, come in a couple of different ways. And honestly, they're much more clinically based than what I was just talking about. So the first most important pitfall is actually recognizing the symptoms and realizing that somebody is having cognitive decline. Somebody comes into your office and they talk a good talk, you may not realize that they're actually having cognitive symptoms, especially if there's a lot of family involvement, somebody else hasn't raised uh, an alarm that something is concerning. The caveat of that is that I think people are now becoming more aware of their symptoms, and research suggests that in the preclinical phases of the illness, you know, maybe when symptoms begin to happen, people then become more aware. And in fact, the subjective sense that people are having cognitive difficulties may be really the first symptom. And at that time, other people may not notice it. The second thing is looking for and eliminating reversible etiologies of cognitive changes, like doing a depression screen, looking for thyroid dysfunction, looking for vitamin deficiencies. Uh, So just making sure that all of the potentially reversible etiologies, particularly depression, have been checked off because obviously the rest can just be done in a blood test. Then trying to figure out whether it's an Alzheimer's dementia or a dementia of another etiology. So looking for other neurodegenerative dementias like frontotemporal dementia, which may present with early significant language difficulties or behavioral disinhibition or Uh, Lewy body dementia, which is a dementia that's associated with visual hallucinations and Parkinsonian symptoms, keeping those differentials in mind. And then, of course, the last pitfall is just making sure that the person is safe. So thinking about things like driving, financial risk, managing at home, and making sure to ask about things and making sure that there are other people involved in that person's care. Those aren't actually pitfalls to making a diagnosis in, in, in as much as it's a, these are all pitfalls in, involved in the diagnostic process. That's really helpful. Thank you. And in terms of management, has there been any recent advances in the management of this disease? The short answer is no. <laughs> um, that's the very short answer. So Alzheimer's disease, pharmacologically speaking, is there are sort of two areas of treatment. One area is the cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's, and the other area is the behavioral symptoms of Alzheimer's. So before even embarking on that, the first step of treatment is providing education and support and guiding families towards resources, referring them to community organizations. In the U.S., we have the Alzheimer's Association, which has support groups. Alzheimer's Association has a wonderful website that has resources to download, um, and the uh, National Institutes of Health in the U.S. has the ADER website, A-D-E-A-R, which also has lots of downloadable information. I'm sure that in the U.K. and other places there are other resources available, um, and I think these are all probably internationally available. And they have brochures ranging from financial and legal issues, caregiving concerns, end-of-life care, and so... You know, just the first piece in managing 
and it's not really a recent advancement, but you know, it's just an important thing to always remember is safety and connecting people to resources because it's such a hard such a hard illness to manage. And then really sometime in the early once the diagnosis has been made, talking about end of life care because there's a lot of research that suggests that things like gastrostomy tubes increase morbidity, increase pain and suffering, and don't significantly improve either quality of life or duration of life. And so thinking about those things when the person can have some input into it uh, is powerful. When you think about the pharmacological treatment, the pharmacological treatment of the cognitive symptoms basically are what they are. They're the cholinesterase inhibitors, which have been around. The first one, I think, came out in the late 90s. And then memantine, which has probably been around for over 10 years as well. And memantine is really only useful in the later, you know, in the moderate to severe stages of the illness. And there are lots of, you know, uh, evidence-based Cochrane reviews that suggest that these are all have benefit in this illness. The only new thing is that, you know, in the last four days, uh, there is a clinical trial of an antibody to the Alzheimer's protein, to the A-beta, which has shown some possible benefit. They had stopped their study because of a futility analysis that suggested that the drug was not useful. And then they collected more data as the study was winding down, and now they've reanalyzed their data, and they think that they actually have enough to begin an FDA application. So no idea whether that's where that's going to go and whether that's actually going to be a new direction uh, in actual treatment, but we're all hoping. The other very, very important treatment uh, area to focus on, which of course is not new, is the treatment of the behavioral symptoms because they're incredibly common. You know, probably more than 50% of people have some kind of behavioral symptoms ranging from apathy, agitation, anxiety, depression, hallucinations, delusions, and sometimes very bad, you know, physical aggression, et cetera. The way to think about that kind of treatment is basically to think about first trying medications which are not known to have really bad side effects and increased mortality. So you start off with things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And then if it's really, if the behavioral symptoms are really bad or dangerous, then using an atypical antipsychotic to really try to control the behaviors and to really think about this whole, the whole process of managing behavioral changes in Alzheimer's disease, keeping the hat of a palliative care doctor in your head or on your head because um, dementia is a terminal illness. And so working with families to think about goals of care and treating people, you know, helping people manage these sometimes incredibly difficult behavioral symptoms is important even in the context of the increased um, mortality. Right. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the pitfalls of management, what are some of the common pitfalls? Uh, common pitfalls, uh, it's important to, um, I think, titrate the medications, the cholinesterase inhibitors, titrating them up gradually so that people can tolerate them. I would say a pitfall in the U.S. is being able to afford them. Other real pitfalls of management are 
you know, always making sure that you're thinking if there's a behavioral change, thinking about underlying medical illnesses or pain that might be causing the symptoms and not immediately reaching for a medication until you've ruled out other other things that might be causing or exacerbating symptoms. As I said, using a palliative care model for treating behavior. Another thing that often happens is that you don't have a clear you don't have clear input from families as to whether your treatment is working. And so asking families to keep a diary to document the efficacy of your interventions, at least, you know, in the week after and the week prior to their visit, so that you can get some real data in terms of the efficacy of your management. And then the other thing is that particularly when we're talking about behavioral, the managing the behavioral symptoms, monitoring for those common side effects of SSRIs, but also of the antipsychotics, like uh, looking for EKG changes, looking for metabolic syndromes to reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Judith. What have we sure. missed? Um, perhaps you can tell us some of the common questions you get asked about this disease. Well, from patients and families, the question I always get is, what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? But I think uh, your audience knows that. And I think from everybody else, the main question we get is, are we any closer to a cure? And that's a really tough question because, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it felt like we knew what we needed to do. And so many of these trials have been negative over the last 15 years. So I am exceedingly cautiously, slightly optimistic about the this recent trial data that came out this week uh, and hoping that that, in fact, uh, will be helpful. And I, I do think that it, it's possible that um, addressing the amyloid, um, which is going on in, another, in other clinical trials, um, may still have some benefit. And I just hope that uh, the basic scientists in our, in our field are still looking for other things so that they're not keeping themselves limited to, this, to the amyloid hypothesis. Great. Well, thank you so much, Judith. And thanks sure. to you all for listening. We hope that this podcast has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you have learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click on the link in the podcast to sign in to BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.